This is Scott McNamara. I am very, very happy to have Amanda Ebert here, uh, and she is an adaptive physical activity practitioner, and I want to get more into that too. And she, she did some research. She had a thesis. She defended it at the University of Alberta uh, under uh, Dr. Donna Goodwin a few years ago, and her paper stands in the short experiences of moral discomfort and adaptive physical activity professional practice. That's was right. published in Adaptive Physical Activity Quarterly like two years ago, I think. I read it just with an intrigue. I think I read the abstract and I think there was a, a curse word in there. And I got, <laughs> yes. you know, as we were just were saying before I started recording, uh, or she was saying curse words get us excited, especially in a, in a, in a research paper. And uh, I read it and I was really blown away with it. So I was, I invited her on and thank you very much, Amanda, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So before we get in there, and this is our first time really meeting, I want a little I want to know a little bit more about you. So first off, like I heard adaptive physical activity practitioner. And you know, in the US, that can take on a lot of meeting meanings. So mm-hmm. I want to know kind of what you who you are and 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 what your career looks like. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I I finished my master's degree in adapted physical activity from the University of Alberta in 2018 now. So it's, it's, wow, time's going very quickly, especially with the pandemic, three years, yeah. Um, And before that though, I actually returned to do grad school about a decade after finishing my undergrad. So I, I have an undergraduate degree in kinesiology and then I went on to work in the field as an APA practitioner. So primarily I have been supporting children and youth um, with, with all different types of diagnosis and impairments to get active in the way that works best for them. So I actually worked at the Steadward Center at the University of Alberta for quite some time um, and absolutely loved it and developed a strong passion for the field and continued to learn so, so much from everybody I interacted with. Um, And then I sort of hit a point where I was like, okay, I need to do something else. I need some more tools in my toolbox. I want to advance my practice a little bit more because when I would go to conferences or trainings, there wasn't a lot specific on adapted. Um, And and it was still really useful to get a lot of other information around, you know, physical literacy or movement skills or whatever it might be to bring back to my practice. But I was just felt like there was something missing. So Dr. Donna Goodwin, who I first met when she was the executive director at the at the Sedward Center, um, it's just been been a phenomenal influence on my career and just an, an amazing woman. And she uh, was really great with saying, hey, why don't you why don't you sign up for one of these graduate courses in adaptive physical activity? I was like, oh, grad school. No way. Researchers are those people who come in and they tell you all the things you're doing wrong and they never give you ideas on how to fix it. And they just critique everything and you feel terrible about yourself after and you know, not touching it. And I was very firm on that for quite some time. And then, you know, more conversations with Donna and and I thought, okay, I'll I'll give it a shot. So I signed up for the one grad course, the adaptive physical activity grad course with her. And all of a sudden I was reading these amazing articles from all over the world and really thinking about things in a way I never had before. And one of the assignments that we had was to lead a seminar 
And my topic was on parental experiences. And so as I started looking at literature and, and planning how I was going to lead this seminar, I was like, hold on, well, I'm not a parent and I'm not a parent of a, of a child experiencing disability. So why am I leading this seminar? And so I asked Donna, can I bring in some parents for us? And she said, absolutely. So I pulled in some of the mums of, of kiddos that I had worked with and we had an absolutely fabulous discussion. So rich, like they read the articles as well. And just this, this profound discussion about parental experiences in that seminar and tying it into the literature and really thinking about some of these, these bigger concepts. And uh, after that seminar, Donna was like, oh my gosh, we've got to write a paper on that. We, we have to go see if those moms are willing to talk again and we can write a paper on these, these parent experiences. And I kind of was like, well, hold on. You mean research can do this, this really useful thing? Like, like you're going to talk to parents and actually listen to what they say? And, and, and we did. And the parents were, were totally in, invested in it and very supportive of the ideas. And we published a research paper on that around parent hidden labor. Um, and that actually influenced practice. Like that really started to change the way we were doing some things at the Stedward Center. And it definitely changed the way I was approaching elements of how I did work. And then that, that was a big shift for me to think about research in a different way, not as this this awful, heavy, theoretical thing that always had to disrupt practice, but something that really could be a tool. And that was really, honestly, my first connection with research being something positive. And I, and I, I hate admitting that it took that long for me, but it really did. I, I mean, I'll just say that, you know, I love, I do research and, and I love doing research. And so I see some benefit to being the disruptor. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I, I definitely can also see I, I kind of loved your your how you defined it earlier, because that's how I often see it. I see usefulness in being a disruptor, though. But uh, yeah, of going in and, and telling people everything they're doing wrong with very little solutions. I love that. But probably you've just um, overall, you know, you encapsulated my my uh, my research line. So I appreciate it. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because it's it's great. To, it's important and, and critical to disrupt things and challenge them. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing it now with, with this work, yeah. um, but I do find it it's important to talk about, okay, now what? With mm -hmm. it? What do we do with this information? And what, what, what can we try next in order to actually make some changes instead of having everybody get all defensive and so, so yeah, that was, that was really amazing for me to have that experience. And then as, as I kind of went back, I was sort of dabbing on this line in between loving the, these grad courses and the way I got to think about them and then also going into practice. But I really started to feel some tension between them where you have all these, these theories and this big critical thinking, and it was bumping constantly against my practice over and over again. You know, you're hearing, um, don't don't make these kind of decisions or don't um, don't be so critical about this about the way somebody's body's moving or but then you have parents saying well I want you to lift my son out of his wheelchair and and support him to walk but then theory's theory would be telling you well no like there's nothing wrong with using a wheelchair so why why do we put so much value on having to walk why, why can we not be working on movement in the wheelchair? And I, I just started feeling really stuck between those things. Like this is what the community is asking and this is what the family wants, but this is what research is saying. And, and the research actually makes a lot of sense and aligns with my values more, but 
what do I do with this? So I started to mm-hmm. feel that tension on many different areas. Um, and then Donna, uh, of course, being the, the ethical researcher she is, just said, ooh, juicy, let's um, dig into those, those moments that are making you feel a little bit sick. And she always, she has this quote that she tells uh, a lot of her students, it's notice what you notice. And so that's kind of where, where it started with us. So she just said, sit with that and go back out there and, t- and tell me more about things that, that make you feel uncomfortable or, or where you're noticing those bumping moments. And so we started having a lot of emails back and forth. I'd be like, Donna, you'll never guess what happened today. I gave a tour to a group of funders and it was so awesome. And the kids were high-fiving and they were having fun, but then they started crying after and said they would give us a check because they want to help these sad, poor, tragic little kids. And I, I feel so devastated because that's not what I was talking about. And that's not the message I thought I was giving yet. That's what these funders took away is that they're only going to give us $10,000 because they want to help these sad little kids. And so, but, but that narrative is not what I want. So what do I do here? Right. So these moments would start to arise more and more and more. And so eventually uh, Donna hooked me and I, I committed fully to the master's degree. And I paused, I, I left this Edward center and kind of paused my career for a while and went in, fully to grad school and and then this paper sort of evolved out of those discussions at the beginning and 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 when these these moments would come up and I go oh I wonder if anybody else's feet get run over by a wheelchair when you piss somebody off and and then I would talk to to some of my colleagues I started very slowly opening up to my colleagues my most trusted ones and they would go, oh my gosh, yeah, me too. We've, we've never talked about that before. And so our conversations, even you know, over coffee started shifting a little bit and like, hey, you know what? I, I did that nonviolent crisis intervention training and I learned how to, how to properly restrain a, a kiddo when they're, when they're being aggressive, but that really feels uncomfortable or you know, should I have done it in, the, in this particular moment? Cause I really don't know that I should have and just start questioning a lot. And then other people go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't want to say anything, but, and these conversations got really rich and deep and it really, it's really strengthened my work relationships with many people. So then when Donna said, well, why don't you start looking at, at, at all of this for your thesis? I mentioned it to my colleagues and they were all like, oh, please, you have to do this. This is so, so important. Let's start having these conversations. And to this day, it's it's greatly influenced my practice, um, my working relationships, the way I teach. I, I teach some undergrad classes at the university, the way that we bring up this, this moral discomfort and these moments that we are afraid to talk about. Yeah, no, I, you know, yeah, I read your article and I, in, in listening to you right now, I related to it from, you know, almost like, I, I think you made it very, I think just even being an authority figure or being a person who is labeled as an expert that yeah. we're supposed to, you know, do something and then just kind of put our flag in every kind of thing and say, this is this, I did this right. And this is the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, I, this happens constantly and um and it but it bugs me too that i you know that people aren't willing to kind of discuss their you know their feelings about these things and then you obviously you went into disability obviously and then and disability and physical activity run very very you know they often uh the, at least the training that goes into them are very very different you know one's very clinical often yeah. in the exercise world and disability is about a person or it should be at least 
I, I really enjoyed your article. And uh, when you interviewed your, your co- or was it your colleagues you interviewed in the, in the study? Uh, I started out with just people that I had interacted with. Yes. Mm-hmm. That I thought would be, would be willing. So some I worked very closely with and some I just were acquaintances of mine. Yeah. And I loved yeah. like, to me, I think one of your, your findings was that they, that like you just said that they, people didn't talk about it, even though people mm-hmm. had these feelings, they kept them to themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and I relate, I, I was a crisis intervention prevention trained person mm-hmm. and I worked in a juvenile, like delinquency kind of center for a year. And mm-hmm. I did stuff like that all the time. And you feel, I felt really weird at first about it. And then you go, and then like, there's like this initiation phase where you're just like, it's part of the job, you know, and you just kind of get hard about it or whatever, but it's that discomfort still there. And I think, you know, could I have done that? Cause it's terrible when you do it. I mean, you're literally oh, it's awful. holding a kid that's doesn't want to be held down. And that's not, it's, it's terrible, you know, oh, it's and, disgusting to think about. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I've had to do it several times. And like I said, and I, I, at some point became a little numb to it. And I think these kind of discussions and kind of just acknowledging the, like, at a minimum, obviously we should maybe decide what, what's the best route to go as yeah. well. But like at a minimum, even just acknowledging like, Hey, that that's kind of messed up. Yeah. Well, that's what I found when I was looking at at the literature um, to do this project where it's discussed all the time in social work. It's discussed all the time in nursing. It's discussed in law. It's discussed in other fields, but it's never discussed in APA. And it's discussed in a lot of fields where you're working with people. And I think I think that's a big thing to keep in mind is like, you know, we're we're working with people. So when you're sitting there physically restraining someone, that's a human, (laughs) like there's, there's a lot that comes with that. And then, and then on ourselves too, if we're never going to acknowledge how heavy that feels, or we're just, we're just kind of turn our brains off and say, this is part of the job, which we all do in many contexts, many, many contexts, this is the way it's always been done. Or, you know, we just kind of fall into that, that rhythm. Um, it, there, there are, are huge, huge impacts on that, on, on us. And then of course, on the people we're working with, but this is where you, like in the literature, it, it talked a lot about, this is the leading cause of burnout, right? This is, this causes mental health conditions. This has communication breakdowns. This causes tension in the workplace, right? Like, so on our own well-being, let alone the community, my goodness, it's profound on the community to not be talking about these things. But yeah, I think it's, it's really something it's, it's a shame we don't talk about it enough in APA. And, and what I learned is that it really comes from people not wanting to give up that role of the expert. They, you know, instead of saying I have expertise, everybody says, well, I'm the expert. Yet, most of us don't experience disability, most of most of us APA or AP professionals. So how can we possibly be experts on, on that kind of experience? We can be. Yeah, yeah, we Even stick if so you have firmly a disability, to it. There's, uh, you know, knowing exactly. one person with a disability is knowing one person with a disability, right? So exactly. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about like summarize your um, your methodology and kind of your main findings from it and feel free to curse. So that's my disclaimer because I know that there's fine <laughs> okay. curse and uh, curse words in the findings. So 
Yeah, there are for sure. So I used an interpretive phenomenological analysis. So I went and interviewed a, a small cohort of, of people. So I think there were seven in, in this and talked to them about moral discomfort. And one decision I made at the beginning was to give them the questions ahead of time. And I'm, I, I really questioned that choice, but I'm really glad that, that we did choose to do that because a couple of people said, oh my gosh, if you wouldn't have given me those questions, I wouldn't have had enough time to think about them. And I would have just given you my cover story. So the cover story being like that, that, that made up excuse baseline uh, narrative around why I do things the way I do things instead of like really going under and talking to you about actually, yeah, I do feel gross with that. And, and so I was really glad that that was the decision that was made. And I try to always approach this with, with that kind of, of uh, kind of disclaimer at the beginning that I want you to dig, like we need to dig on this stuff. And so I, I interviewed everybody and there were a ton of tears. There were a lot of people saying, this is the first time I've ever admitted this. Um, I, I'm so, 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 I feel so privileged and honored that these individuals were brave enough to share their stories with me in the way they did. And, and from there, of course, now sharing it with you and, and with all the students we've worked with and in a, in a published paper. So I think that vulnerability is just really needs to be acknowledged. Um, but yeah, then we talked about the moral discomfort. We talked about the stories and we talked about what do you do with it? And, uh, and, and there were four main themes that came out of it. So the first one was the, the asset of vulnerability. And that was where everybody was saying, yeah, you know what? We, we need to, to be learning from one another. We need to be talking about these things. We need to be, we need to be vulnerable. Um, but it's really hard because being vulnerable and putting yourself at risk kind of makes you look like an ass. <laughs> So in certain situations, I'm not, I'm not comfortable to be vulnerable and I'm not going to say to my supervisor, I'm not sure. I'm not going to tell a, a colleague from another profession. That was a big thing I heard about was, you know, we're, we're APA or APE, but we're working with OT, PT, doctors, like these people with very rigid scopes of practice and a really mm. set way of doing things. And we kind of come in with this, you know, in the gray area, we just live in the gray area. And so some things that we do are touching OT's turf and some are touching rec therapy's turf and some are touching physio's turf and some are touching co coaching's turf. And so it's, it's hard to have to be vulnerable with these people that I, don't, I actually don't know something when I'm trying to prove my professionalism around them. Um, and, then, and then same with colleagues, that was another big thing is I don't wanna say to a colleague or a parent that I don't know something. Um, and if I made a mistake, I don't want to admit that I made that mistake because I'm really ashamed of it. And now I don't want to be judged on top of the shame I'm already feeling. So that was, that was a pretty profound one and, and very, very consistent. I think a lot of us can relate with that as well, that, you know, yeah. we don't want, we don't want to I be caught with that think, stigma of screwing up. I don't think I, yeah. And I think that the normal way to get around it, like you said, is just to like put your head down and just kind of, uh, dig in deeper. Yeah. And maybe even then just repeat the mistake and be like, see? <laughs> exactly. And the finger pointing and the blaming. And, and this yeah. is where those cover stories get to be so, so dangerous when we just start to make excuses instead of admitting it. Right. And, and it is dangerous because we're working with humans. Like we can't, we can't fake it, but that happens. Um, and then the second theme was, was around friends or friendly. And this was really the relationship. So everybody, everybody I talked to said very, very clearly and firmly, and, and I have a sense you would agree with me on this too, but that relationship that we build with the people we're working with is by far the most important thing. 
you have to build rapport. You have to connect with each individual person in order to be supporting them. You, you need to. And so people had said, yes, that relationship is critical, but oh, is that ever a touchy line? Because some people you're seeing them once a week, three times a week for decades even. So you really get to know them. You're, you're not just going on a workout or doing some, you know, some sports skills together and not having conversation. You know, there's, there's kids I work with now that I've, I've watched grow up, you know, I've started working with them when they were eight and now they're 20 and we're, we're working together again. Like it's this very, you know, you really build those foundational relationships. So people were talking about, you know, there's that line between being friendly and being friends. And so everybody had different strategies with this. Like some said they would never use the word friend when they're working with individuals just to kind of help and maintain that boundary. Others said, you know, I don't mind it somewhat and, and I'll go to a birthday party of somebody. And others said, I would never cross that line of going to a birthday party. Um, I did notice interestingly enough that the males that I interviewed, um, they had less of an issue of going to birthday parties and attending events and, and things like that than the females and mm. the females had stories of, um, uh, uh, several of them had stories where individuals would start to ask them out on dates or, you know, have some inappropriate touching and things like that. So I don't, I don't know that there's something there, but I did notice that on the small, very, very small. I've never had that experience when I've gone to, th and I have gone to things before like that. And I've never had any, I mean, maybe awkward experiences where like maybe a parent or something gives you like a mimosa. I had that happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and then you're like, moral discomfort right like I love yeah. mimosas <laughs> yeah I really want this mimosa but hold on a second yeah but yeah just just navigating that that friends are friendly boundary and then then the disadvantage of not having good lines on that is that um like one individual said you know I just got so uncomfortable somebody was they somebody asked me out on dates and another person said you know somebody started telling me about really personal things right which is which is amazing that we have this trusting relationship that they can tell me about the abuse in their past or the abuse in their present. Um, that's, that's good. But also I'm not, I don't get that training as an APA professional. How do you navigate those conversations? Where do you refer somebody? How do you support them? And so I'm not equipped to be dealing with that. So I'm uncomfortable. Right. And, but I don't want to not have that close relationship. So how do you navigate that too? Right. And, and um, so they would pull away. Then, then one person said, I just became really cold and isolated. I didn't want to connect with anybody because I was worried about where that relationship would go next. So, and, and then of course, I know for me, I find the relationship is different with everybody. Some people have a line, you know, at this point, and some people can be a little further, but I don't know if that's the right thing to do to treat everybody a little different too. So it's, it's complex. And that was the main thing that came up is this, this friends are friendly is very complex. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I think I've, I, I, you know, people that are listening might be some colleagues of mine too. I'm like, I mean, yeah, there is that, there is that thing. And it's, again, I think all the things that you're talking about, I think are maybe to some degree self-evident, you know, in the world, Yeah. but so rarely do we discuss them in any type of professional setting. And, and in our professional preparation, like I know in I the courses do. I teach here, no, and, and you teach as well, right? And we, I've never talked with students about, you know, I mean, I think we're seeing now at U of A more trauma-informed 
approaches coming in. And it's, that's so needed. And I'm so glad that we're seeing that. But that's still very new. I never learned anything about how do you how do you navigate something like that. And that's very real, unfortunately, in the world of, of people experiencing disability, that there's all these complex layers going on, but we don't teach how to navigate relationships or how to how to answer tough questions or if somebody tells you that they're suicidal do we have the the tools to deal with that because that happens yeah no I don't know I mean as far as like preparation programs you know I I've struggled with transparency sometimes in my Mm -hmm. grading or um creating assignments or maybe whatever all like are I I've gone I was super transparent And I felt like where I would kind of discuss, you know, like kind of like, hey, these are how the grades are kind of set up and like that it's subjective, you know, and that's just that's really how it is. I do my best and, you know, whatever. Right. The same thing with maybe like, um, yeah, whatever, like content kind of creating it like, you know, there's all these different ways to create the content. This is one way that I'm trying to present. And I, I felt like the students took that as I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) right because I don't think anybody else talks to them that way so I then have gone into a more of a probably a command style at least in that or less transparent way of teaching my courses of right hey you know I know my stuff right like don't don't question it because yeah and then again we make those decisions because we don't want our expertism challenged right yeah no there's pros and cons with that of course yeah yeah absolutely um, so, so just talking about moral discomfort, um, and I'm not sure, you know, what the answer is to this, but like how, or should we, you know, try to overcome this? Yeah, well, I, I asked that question in the interviews and that kind of became the last theme is, is now that we're grappling with this, now we've identified it. I mean, I even questioned that myself, like, okay, now with these seven people, we've just had this super raw, vulnerable conversation about this really hard shit. And and am I just leaving them now? Like, is that ethical? Is, is that okay to be doing that? And so I, I can definitely say with, with those individuals, I still continually to this day follow up, which I think is one of the advantages of having talked with people that I had a pre-existing relationship with that I knew that we would stay in contact. Um, but really I asked them like, like, what do we do with all this now? You know, you've talked about all these really big things and, and people had different suggestions. Um, and then every time I, I am talking about this with undergrad students or groups of professionals, I always get them to add their input as well. Like, what do we do with this now? Um, but the professionals in this study, like they said, you know, number one, acknowledge it. Like, that's the number one thing is don't shy away from it. And, you know, you, you, you feel the whole thing in your body, but let's have these discussions now. Whenever you, whenever you get that feeling, like learn to connect those dots, like, oh, something's going on. And then find people to say it to, because the individuals that I talked to that had colleagues that they did feel safe enough to say, whoa, hold on, this happened today. Those people said, I would not be able to still be working unless I had that connection. Like this stuff can be so heavy in moments and so gross feeling in moments that if I can't debrief it with somebody, it's, I, I would not still be working in this field. And I, I could definitely put myself in that category. I had a time period where I did not have people like that that I would be talking to and I burnt out fully. And it's not solely because of moral discomfort, of course, but that weighs heavier on you, right? When you're not having those conversations. And so everybody said, you know, maybe you need 
you need an anonymous forum where people can just post, okay, this super shitty thing happened today. Anybody have comments on it, right? If, if it needs to be anonymous at, to get it started or at your staff meeting, you take half an hour at the end because that is important. Half an hour seems like a lot in our world sometimes, but it's so important to have those conversations. And um, some people said that they still prefer to, to push it down that they go home and it just feels so gross at work that they're like, oh, I just can't. I'm going to compartmentalize and leave work at work and go home and pretend like nothing happened, right? I'm just going to shrug it off. And if in one person acknowledged too that it's it's opening a can of worms, right? If, if I start talking about it, I know there's lots of other things I've pushed down and, uh, and, and then it's going to open everything up and I don't know if I'm prepared to do that. Yeah. Right. So so people people really felt differently about things. Um, but when when we say to them, when I ask them, like, what, what do we do now with this? So number one thing was share your story. And then the next one was just question your sacred stories. Start to think about the knowledge that that, you know. So one of the, the things when I present this that we talk about is, you know, there was a time during the Tour de France when a, a physician would be giving a cyclist a cigarette as they as they went by because we thought that would help their lungs right so so our our stories change our knowledge changes over time so don't ever forget that sometimes we need to unlearn things and um, always just keeping that open mind especially with the community and the people that we're working with because if we're working with them and not for them we're going to be able to do a lot a lot more and learn a lot more and feel better about the decisions that we make uh, but but yeah, those are some of the, the the initial changes that people mentioned for sure. Yeah, no, and I, I'm really happy you're on here and uh, talking about this. I, I'm really now, I'm, you know, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, you know, I really hope that there's some teachers out there listening to this, you know, and I think in our field, oftentimes people are isolated professionally as well, yeah. that they are the only person out there. Uh, in their district or, you know, whatever, you know, they're not seeing a lot sure. of their, and I, I think just to even know that we're all grappling with, or most of us are grappling with these issues is an important yeah. thing to even just to highlight, you know, like that we do work in these, a, a very strange, you know, um, you know, and I'm sure every field has it, but we're, you know, when we're working with behavioral issues, we're mm -hmm. at some point needing some level of compliance, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, what is that then? What, what, what is the relationship then happening? And, you know, what are the things that I'm having to do? And, you yeah. know, there's all, and, you know, there's ABA stuff with autism, right. Of yeah. doing things and treating kids like dogs, kind of like, you know, with yeah. like Pavlov's kind of law um, and kind of thinking about those things and, and, and that it's okay to feel kind of gross about it and to question it. I think what you're also saying too, is that there's a lot of unknown and that to some extent, these moral issues, you know, with the level of, of knowledge that we have in best practices and professional preparation is just going to happen. It's, you know, it's not that, this that as a professional like you're a bad person or something but like this is basically part of the job um yeah. is that we have some level of this i think well that's just it and, and the whole point of this project is not 
and this conversation with you is not in any way to be passing judgment on people or having people start, you know, harshly judging themselves. That's not the intention. It's about like having a conversation about it, just, just stating it, just being open about it and, and admitting it. And I find like the, the more and more I start talking about this, the deeper I'm able to go. Like there was a time when I, I, I have one story that, that I share often now, but when I first started talking about it, I would just cry or I was embarrassed to get it out. And now I can tell it without the same amount of shame, even because I've learned from it now, right? Where it was, it was around working with a boy with autism and um, he was nonverbal. And I made a ton of assumptions about this kid, a ton of assumptions that, you know, his, he was, his behaviors came from nowhere, Right, which of course we know is, is not true, but at that time that that's what I was believing, right? And um, I would always use a picture board, but I also talked to him in such simple, simple, simple cues all the time. And he was 13 and I would still talk to him like he was three. Um, and, and then he started, you know, pulling my ponytail out of my hair or doing all of these, what I classified as, as aggressive behaviors, what I classified as aggressive behaviors, instead of seeing it as communication. And the worst thing is that then I would I would be part of the the school team, I would connect with his OT, I would work with his phys ed teacher, and I would perpetuate that narrative that he has violent aggressive outbursts, that he is nonverbal and therefore does not understand you, right? Like I would write that in a report, which is horrible now looking back. I would tell practicum students working with this individual, but watch out, right? Like those are the kind of things I would do. And then as I got to know him more and more and started to change the way I think about things and approach it and started to realize learning a lot more about behavior being communication. I started to see all the things he was telling me instead of hearing them. Right. And I start, I shifted one day. I just tried something new and I started to talk to him in full complete sentences. Like I would any other 13 year old kid. And every, immediately that day, immediately every single one of his behaviors stopped. Never again after that day did he pull my ponytail. I would just say to him, like, hey, buddy, like, no, I, I don't I don't want to be touched like that. Or if you're gonna behave that way, don't hang out here. And he responded, he understood, right? And then I just started realizing all of these horrible assumptions that I had, how they've impacted that individual, not only for the years that we worked together, but oh my gosh, everywhere else in his life that I had had an impact with this wrong, inaccurate narrative, right? And that's a big thing to own up to. Like that's somebody's life that I negatively impacted, but I'm owning up to it now. And I'm learning from that now. And I've been able to, to go back and, and change that now, right? That yeah, he's nonverbal, but that doesn't mean he doesn't understand me. And yes, he has behaviors sometimes, but look at his behaviors because he's not meaning to be aggressive. It's actually because he really liked my hair tie. It's a thing for hair ties, right? That's what I didn't yeah. realize at the time, you know? So just being having to admit that is hard. And I've been very upset telling that story many times, but the more and more we talk about these things, the deeper we can go. And, and, the, and the, it's always still hard, but the easier in a way it is to just say, I'm going to own this. I've screwed up and I'm going to do better now because of that. And, and I hope somebody else heard that story and went, Oh shit, I've done the same thing yeah. or, or just questions. Hey, I work, I also work with somebody who's nonverbal and, and exhibits behaviors. Maybe I should be thinking about that a little bit. And 
what actually is a behavior? Is it because I want them to stand on this green spot and they want to run around? Am I classifying that as behavior? Who, who's making that choice, right? So start to, we start to dig a little bit deeper. And the more we all talk to each other about these things, the more we can all question them and learn from it. And that's what I hope really comes out of, out of this work is that we can all say, I feel that too. Clearly there's something going on here. Let's dig deeper together. Yeah. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about some of my students, my undergrad students. And, you know, I always notice the students that I think do a tremendous job, do a lot of reflecting. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's, I, t- to me, seems to be the big kind of, if I can tell somebody is going to be pro- very good in their career. And I can't yeah. always. But um, it, the thing that seems to be the, the factor is that I'm, I, I can observe them engaging in critical reflection. Mm-hmm. over what they're learning and what they're practicing on a regular basis. And to me, that's the thing I really want in, in our practitioners is to critically reflect on things. Now yeah. myself, and this is probably why I have a podcast, I am really not a great solo critical thinker, but I can engage in it really well in a, in a conversation. And yeah. again, that's why, you know, my, my thoughts only go so far when it's me sitting in a room by myself podcast help actually too but sitting across from somebody like you're saying talking to somebody I think a lot a allows you to say somebody else is going through this but also it's this stream of consciousness thing that at least for my learning style and I know it's not everybody's is very beneficial for me to get my ideas out Um, absolutely yeah. yeah so yeah I mean these are powerful things I you know my last kind of topical question thing that I I ask in these things is you know when we're discussing ethics in the field of adapted physical activity like how how do we how do you see our field maybe continuing to improve in these areas and and before before we get into that something I'm thinking about with all these things is that at some point we say it's not just more moral discomfort this is wrong and we, it becomes um, a truth in our field. For example, we do not use the R word anymore. That's pretty much universal now, right? Yes. It's, yes. it's offensive. It's been offensive for a long time, but it's been a truth in our field for maybe 15 years. Um, so like, where do you, and, and so with that, like, yeah, this broad concept of when do things become from moral discomfort to a, a no, and then how do you see that progressing in our field? Well, that's a big question because I think our field is so incredibly diverse, so broad. Like even, even the question, like what is APA? You, you could have an entire podcast on that. Like trying to. Yeah, like, like what is it? And I don't think there's, there's really a, a good definition of that because it's everybody has such different approaches. I mean, even when you look at, I talk about this with students too. When they start to look at literature, you see literature contradicting itself. <laughs> You'll see one article saying, you know, reverse integration is, is the best learning tool. It's so awesome. It puts people in this position. They think more critically. They see things they wouldn't have seen. And you see other, other articles that go, hold on, that's the worst thing you can do. Uh, students are not getting the full experience, of course. And and, you know, now they're leaving with a whole bunch of assumptions and you're asking them to have a, a lived experience when they don't live that experience, right? You're, you're putting them in a, a wheelchair for an hour and expecting them to understand. So you can find articles under in APAC 
talking about both of those things, right? And so, so the answers sometimes of what is right or wrong, I, it's incredibly difficult and incredibly complex. And, you know, like, like we had said just before we started this, right, when you look at, you know, some of the, the, the researchers at the U of A, like I have the, the privilege of, of working alongside, you know, Dr. Nancy Spencer and, and Dr. Danielle Pierce and Dr. Donna Goodwin and the, the, the areas of focus here at the U of A right now compared to the areas of focus in, in other universities, both are APA, both have valuable contributions in different ways, but you could look at, at one or the other and, and consider it right or wrong, depending on the approach that you're taking, right? Like, so, and you know, if you look at some kind of uh, motor skill assessments, right? So here's, here's ways that you can teach throwing, break down the skill of throwing and teach it to people to throw properly. But then what about people whose bodies move in different ways? Is, is that proper way? Does that mean that they're less of a human? Does that mean that they can't? Or are you giving them more tools that they can then explore movement with their body? And maybe there's something useful in the way you're teaching it. Like, how are you delivering that, that lesson? And what kind of uh, a lesson or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? The kind of approach are, are you taking with that individual? No. Are you telling them they're throwing wrong? Or are you giving them different ways that they can try and throw, right? And so I find that, a very difficult question unless you had something more narrow on it no no i i i like these broad questions that don't have it yeah. like i said at the beginning that's what i'm into i'm into to problematizing things and having no solutions yeah but, it's great but um you know i with your kind of some of the stuff you're talking about because i've talked about that maybe once or twice on here about maybe even the conflict of like biomechanics in our field um yeah and i, I put air quotes on there I'm not saying biomechanics are not good. Biomechanics are great, but Agreed. maybe the scientist or some things that drive the theory, the values that drive them of this is the best and correct form are things that can be problematic when they're paired into our field. Um, you know, I think about my mom, my mom was left-handed and, you know, born in the fifties and um, actually 1960, she'd be mad if I said that. But, <laughs> uh, anyways. Uh, so she was left-handed and everything that she had to do, she was ha had to use her right hand, right? So that was yeah. back then she went to a Catholic church. They smacked her hand kind of thing if she used her left hand because it was the devil's hand. Right. Any Catholics right. listening, they know this. Uh, but uh, so, I mean, that's, you know, obviously that's, that's faux pas now. Like, you know, we don't do that because why would you do that? That was as you, you had your, your, um, your example about smoking and, um, while, while cycling, I mean, it's, yeah. I think those types of values, I, I would love that to kind of be a big topic for us to kind of tackle in our field because mm -hmm. a lot of our kids, a, are never going to be able to, to do a proper, whatever, a proper air quotes, yeah. air quotes proper, form yeah. is for these things why is it necessary for them to do it? Yeah. And when we teach in our undergrad programs and such that this is the quote unquote proper way and that everything else is less than, yes. what values are we then instilling about disability and not even just disability about just, just humanity. Yeah. Just yeah. differences. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And that is so important. And I love that, that 
we're talking about that and acknowledging that as people who teach undergraduate students, because this, the individuals in the study as well, and talked about, you know, that's what I learned. You know, I got that when you work with somebody living with Down syndrome, this is what you do. When you work with somebody living with cerebral palsy, this is what you do, which blows my mind because how on earth can you possibly think that one approach is going to work for everybody with the same diagnostic label? I, I just, knowing so many individuals with um you know several individuals living with damage several living with cerebral palsy everybody's so different that how could you possibly do that but that's still how we teach sometimes right or you know autism you're working with somebody living with autism do these things and but then you can't cross them over either so you never hear when you're working with somebody with down syndrome here's something from the autism category that works really well when in reality that's what's happening Right. You yeah. just, it's all about building a huge foundational toolbox and pulling the, the right thing at the right time to support whoever it is doing whatever it is they want to be doing. But yeah, no. And I, I mean, you know, um, in my class, we looked at evidence based practices uh, for autism yeah. yesterday. Right. Yeah. And great, great stuff. And I very proud of my pat myself on the back. We talked about what is an evidence based practice? Why, why is it evidence based practice? Right. Not just here are the things. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, as you said earlier, those types of things, those things sound sexy and they valid, they, we feel like they can validate our field more, right? We're using, yeah. I mean, that's a great term to use and to say there's research to support it. So I use these uh, yeah. and we should use them, you know, like that's they're, they're they have a purpose, but I think you're right. Like it's, it's, is not a one size fit all kind of. No, and I think it ultimately comes down like I get. I guess my big answer for your your broad ethics question is is go to the individual, right? Like things need to be participant or individual oriented. They should be driving what activities you're working on. They should be driving what what comes next. They should be driving what's right or wrong. Like they should have a very strong influence on that. This is going to be different with everybody too. But I think if we if we can start to support them instead of trying to help them and do everything for them, um, that really shifts the way that we think about think about our work. Absolutely. Well, Amanda, I really appreciated the conversation on this um, and making me uncomfortable morally <laughs> is uncomfortable. Just good. I hope you can talk to somebody else about it too later. <laughs> Thank you. My wife will love to hear about it. <laughs> but, Perfect. Yeah, but. Uh, and I, I just congratulations on doing such a meaningful piece of work for your master's thesis. Um, I, I often do not know if that's always the case that that such a great end product is, is created. So thank you for your contribution. I hope that you continue contributing to the wider field of uh, literature because I can tell that you have some really great thoughts. So thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you.